salutations one and all. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am pleased and honored to have as our guest today, uh, Anton Chuvakin. Uh, Anton and I worked together at Gartner for a number of years. Uh, although we didn't work directly together, we, we did uh, have cocktails uh, quite a few times together. Um, Anton left Gartner actually a little bit before I did, and he is now an advisor at the office of the CISO for Google Cloud. So you have a title that basically you need a foldable card to, to be able to get that on there. So thanks, uh, Anton, for joining us. Yes, in reality, it's much worse. I just gave you a shortened title. And uh, yeah, there's a bit of a story there. But uh, sometimes I, I struggle with coming up with a cool short title. I've been an evangelist before. I've been a strategist, I think, a number of years ago. And of course, I've been an analyst at Gartner. So yeah. at this point, I don't know. I think I've run out of cool title ideas and I don't want to go for anything pretentious like, uh, okay, fine. Like, I'm not even... like, like, like cyber risk evangelist, not pretentious. Like cyber risk evangelist <laughs> would be a little on the pretentious side. But you didn't say guru, so I think you're fine. As long as yes. you, I think guru is where you, yeah, I draw the line. I'm not doing a guru thing. Yeah, I uh, the, I got into a little bit of a, of a back and forth with a guy on LinkedIn a couple of months ago, and in his LinkedIn profile, he called himself an iconoclast. And I kind of said, I kind of said, if you call yourself that, you're not. And it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. He he posted this thing, and I said, oh, I think this is an oversimplification. He said, Well, you know, I was. Uh, have you heard of? of uh, poetic license and i said yeah the problem is the 30 people that commented they also didn't pick up on that they <laughs> oh, thought man, you were no. being serious and they, they didn't go anywhere well um but my my favorite title years ago uh when i worked at martha stewart uh they gave me a promotion and they said what what's your new title they said don't you tell me and they said no give us a title so i told them i was the uh head minister at the ministry of silly walks and they what? Printed, they print. Yeah, it's it's a it's a um a Monty Python joke, oh. right? Head muckety muck, and they printed the cards. Sense. I thought I thought they were gonna be like, "What are you doing here?" But they printed <laughs> them. So eh, just just goes to show you. I th I guess they think you're smart. They think you know something, and they kind of just take you at uh, at face value. So, um, all right. So I definitely want to hear. I mean, I know, but I think our our listeners would definitely want to hear what you do in your role. But first. Let's talk movies, and and then we'll kind of transition in. So let me see what uh, what movie question can we give Anton? You 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 may have picked up Anton has a little bit of an accent, so we we're going to assume he's still seen a bunch of American movies. He's been here a long time, so I got it. All right, so here's my question for you, Anton. Um, you you are uh, a prognosticator, a forecaster, uh, a future seeker. So let's talk about an example of something predictive, something future looking in a movie that turned out to be totally ridiculous. And you can't say flying cars or jetpacks because that's, that's a cheat. So um, what do you got? So somebody told me that if you look up on the, on, on the correct day here in Bay Area, you can't see a flying car flying around because apparently <laughs> somebody is testing a prototype here, probably even as we speak. So I think the flying car argument may... We may survive. We may live long enough to see flying cars because apparently there's one Anton, flying. I live in Florida. People can't drive in two dimensions down here. I do not want flying cars. 
uh, yeah, that, it's, it's, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a pilot license. I'm not a pilot, but some of the pilots tell me that it's in some regards easier because you can go up and down without crashing. There's usually nothing above your plane and nothing under your plane. So maybe it would make things better. I don't know. But as far as predictions, I, I, when I think about this, my mind goes to um, sort of beautiful, brilliant predictions of the future that get something awfully horribly wrong. And I, I, my first example was uh, not from our area, not from the cyber area. It's basically interstellar travel, starships, and paper maps, where you have the... Uh, today, we are far beyond paper maps. I, I was reading a book uh, the other day about uh, generations, Gen X, millennials, and there was something about Gen X being the last generation to use paper maps. And then generations after wouldn't know the concept. So today we don't have paper maps essentially, but uh, we also don't have starships. Um, <laughs> so to 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 use uh, uh, an example close to our land, I, I was there was a movie um, based on the Gibson book. I'm trying to remember the name. I think it was Johnny Mnemonic from the 90s. And uh, it just just as the book, uh, this movie just as the book had this beautiful cyberspace metaverse, uh, digital utopia, and no wireless. Everybody was plugging in. So, so in that sense, you can predict something beautiful, well thought, true sci-fi, and then miss something that we take for granted today. So to me, I'm kind of picking, I'm picking on those examples because to me, they teach us something about prediction and not, no, I'm not going to do the prediction is difficult uh, if it's about the future. But, but the point is that sometimes you predict beautifully brilliant and you get something so off that people would think, oh, he must be wrong. But he may be wrong. The prediction may be wrong in some areas, but it may be right in other areas. So I wouldn't dismiss Gibson's work on cyberspace. I love the books just because he didn't get wireless in 1995. Right. Yeah. I, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned that, though, because I, I think you're right. Uh, I think that we have a tendency to be really good with some things in the same sort of story, the same narrative, and totally miss others. And I think actually flying cars is a, is a great example, right? Because when I was a kid, it just seemed like a natural progression. And I think maybe that's the key thing, right? Is the progressions are rarely what actually happens, right? It tends to be kind of leaps and, and bounds. And, um, you know, wireless and, and Bluetooth and, and those kinds of things um, we take them for granted. Like our kids plug in, like, what is that? My daughter, I, yeah. I was cleaning up my office the other day and I had some adapters in there and I had like an ethernet adapter. My daughter's like, what's that? Like, she's never even seen that. And they're, you know, totally tech related because, you know, it's, it's, it's just not the, not the norm. So I, I will tell you my, my sort of thing. So, uh, a, a couple, maybe a year ago, uh, one of our former colleagues, Mark Horvath, uh, pointed me at a sci-fi series called The Expanse. It's actually really good. I didn't necessarily love the way they ended it, but what that made me think about was we watch Star Wars and Star Trek, and all those ships are pristine and clean, uh -huh. and nothing, no micrometeors ever come through, and nobody ever dies on the ship because something malfunctioned, right? They're always getting shot with phasers. Yeah. And then you look at the expanse and you see the ships are dirty and the people are dirty. And you kind of go, well, that's probably actually what it would be like, right? So not even the mm. technology, but just the environment, I think, of, of the expanse to me was so much more 
realistic. One one other forecast in there, which I don't think will ever happen, was the Earth had one government under uh, under uh, Christian uh, in the UN. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But uh, you know, that's that's not a technology prediction as much as it's uh, a prediction that goes against what people think. So, all right, awesome. So, so that actually gives me an interesting thought, right? You and I have talked quite a few times in in. At some point back in your history, you were a security operations guy. And, uh, you know, I think security operations, and I did a little bit, but definitely not as much as you. I think security operations figured they were going to solve everything. They were going to fix all of the security problems, right? Let's just get operational things in place and we're, we're good. We'll never have any other problems. And I think we've seen that not to be the case, right? How many security operations technologies were going to fix everything and then either never lived up to hype or got surpassed by some other technology which kind of came along and knocked it off its post? So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about you know, security operations and what you've seen in the evolution and, and I think you know, kind of culminate that with what you're doing now, right? Because I think cloud is a great example of a technology nobody would have for sort of forecast. And I think that's turned security operations on its ears. I think that lately, and I mean years scale lately, I do see, and I do have to argue occasionally with people who have exactly the opposite stance, that the operations, security operations, uh, SOC specifically, detection and response functions are almost like not only they're not solving everything, they need to go and we're going to go sockless, we're going to go immutable infrastructure, we're going to go cloud native. So uh, it's occasionally I do see, no, not occasionally, more often I see people who argue exactly the opposite point that that in some near future world, the detection and response functions, the security operation functions aren't needed because operations are automated, detection is I don't know, somehow unnecessary. It's hard for me to argue this because I think it's a thoroughly idiotic stance, but uh, but it's the diminished importance of SOC is, is there. And I definitely see organizations with a lot um, different setups rather than like, I'm going to buy a SIM from a massive uh, scale on-premise vendor. I'm going to install it on, you know, 41 servers. I'm going to tune the database, basically the 90s. Like, I think the 90s are over. And I think that the world where thank, people, thank God. yeah, like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to go there. Like uh, <laughs> fun things happen in the night. So uh, in any case, I, I feel like I'm defending the DNR detection response case against people who assume that some beautiful future infrastructure would produce the ships without dirt, would produce these starships without dirt or scratches because everything would be, nanoboted and uh, written, instantiated from a repo and everything is gold imaged and uh, beautifully checked at pre-prod stage. So there's nothing to detect. Everything is, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm writing your metaphor because I liked it so much. Basically, the SecOps isn't needed because everywhere we have shiny chrome and metal and everything is beautifully done from scratch. And I think that I think that's just wrong because it won't be like this because there would always be attackers who do stuff to your to your to your infrastructure to your systems and so and your however beautiful however immutable however secure by default your stuff is it will be compromised i'm sorry that's otherwise we wouldn't be doing cyber we, we wouldn't be doing we wouldn't be enjoying this career for decades uh, in the past and hopefully for decades in the future so i think the detection response 
would exist in some futuristic form. It wouldn't be gone. So in that sense, much of the SOC would morph. We have this whole vision called autonomic security operations at Google Cloud, which highlights that you know systems and machines would interoperate in a certain way and they would be heavily automated tasks. But we're not saying just build it real secure and you're done. That is an idiotic stance. I don't, I don't think that I, I, I'm willing to debate anybody who says, but this new advance in quantum acts would produce yeah. unbreakable encryption and unmodifiable configs, and presumably they, they don't promise un, un, unerring humans, but they promise systems that presumably don't depend on human mistakes. I don't know. I think that uh, you would still need detection response in the future for the foreseeable future, if not forever. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I, I always tell people a couple of things. Um, first of all, there are way more bad guys than good guys. They have no ethical or moral boundaries. They have a lot more free time than we do. And as defenders, we need to be perfect. They only need to find one hole in, in our defenses. And and to your point, I think that, that fully automated shiny starship requires perfection, which will never, ever happen. And I think the cloud has, has, in some ways, it's made it better, but in some ways, it's also made it worse because the rate of change, I mean, Google's a great example, right? You don't have quarterly software updates. You're updating software all the time on all these different platforms, right? So the, the, the automation just can never, ever keep up with that. And the bad guys are looking for that transition. They're looking for their, those um, open opportunities. So I agree with you. I would like you to point me, though, at the people who say that we're going to solve everything with automation. Because I agree with you. We, we, we should gang tackle those people and, and bury them in the basement. I think that they're not trying to say, well, automation can't keep up with change. Humans can't, right? But so in that right. sense, I'm actually going to slightly change your take. But unfortunately... Uh, you know, humans would be needed to create the automation. As, as a funny aside, uh, to very quickly go on a quick tangent, uh, lately I've been dealing a lot with securing AI systems of various types. And uh, there were people asking questions about like adoption of various modes of AI by good guys and bad guys. And somebody brought up a really good argument. And, and, and they said, the reason I fear the bad guy use of AI, uh, that person said, is that Defenders, the good guys, have a lot more rules, a lot more processes, practices, layers of occasional bureaucracy and compliance, so that if you do have an absolute perfect tech to achieve an absolute goal you have, you may still not apply the perfectly applicable tech to a perfectly suitable goal because of some rules. And the bad guy would absolutely apply a tech that fits his goal to the, to the goal. And in that sense, I'm not trying to say I'm not very much not trying to say that we need to become more bad guys and break the rules. This is not the point. The point is that you need to consider this during planning. If you say there's this new tech called LLM, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. It's called X. Let's not, uh, and uh, attackers no, can no, adopt you can't, it. You can't call it X anymore. Okay, yeah, X because now, of fine. Yes, X is now the <laughs> Yeah, fair point. It's all over Twitter. <laughs> Actually, Twitter, it is I don't, know what I don't know what Twitter <laughs> is anymore. So let's take the, let's say there's technology Y and attackers can use it and defenders can use it and it fits it solves problems for both sides and uh, sometimes you may create beautiful use cases for the defenders but they may go and across 
1996 law called HIPAA or something, like to pick a random example. And so to me, the reason that person brought up, brought up a passionate argument about fearing attacker use of AI technologies is that type of rule breaking not being encumbered by rules. And to me, it is stuck in my head now. I used to be a lot more optimistic, and I am still very optimistic about the AI use of defenders. I have, I see a lot of amazing work being done and being completed and shipped to customers that we have here at Google. And it's working very well, and it's improving lives of not just people, but also security people, defenders, right? But at the same time, that nagging thought is in the back of my mind, is that if we have some innovation that attackers can use, and defenders in theory should be able to use but won't because of some rules, how are we, gonna not, how are we not going to lose? And I do not right. know the yeah. answer to this, and the answer is not rule-breaking. But, uh, but uh, that's, that, that's what worries me occasionally. It's, it's not what I lose sleep over, but this is just a new kind of um, thing that's stuck in my head. And I think it applies to a SOC as well. Uh, it applies to detection response functions as well. You may be able to collect collect all the data and make certain conclusions of the data, and then suddenly somebody says, "Hi, I'm, my name is Privacy Law. Are you really doing it?" And the answer is, "No, you can't do it." Right. You know, if you if you remember the the old movie, uh, The Hunt for Red October, right? There was mm -hmm. that sonar tech, yeah. and that guy broke every rule in order to sort of solve the the problem. And I think yep. I think you're spot on. And not I think it's not only the laws, it's also ethics and morals, right? I think Wait, you're not pushing the, it's a little that's that's uh, no no you're no not I'm trying just to have that, defenders learn from that, right? Like how No, why? I'm just saying I'm just saying that um bad actors are gonna tend to have looser ethics and morals than good actors. And I yes. think as a result they may do things that, you know you know, imagine if a defense mechanism would cause a problem for another company or somebody else within the company. The defender might hesitate, but the bad guys, they, they don't care, right? We see this in you know, movies where terrorists are willing to sacrifice thousands of lives, millions of lives to get their thing across. We we actually just watched Die Hard with my daughter. Oh, uh, and, the original and the, one? Great, oh. yeah, the, <laughs> yes. yeah, great, great movie. And of course, we did get into discussion. Is it a Christmas movie? Is it not? Uh what do you think, Die Hard Christmas movie or no? Um, we had this debate at some of the meetings internally. So, <laughs> and I, I, I don't think it grew. I, I don't think it got to a very passionate conclusion. But I think that the Christmas movie camp has won. So I, 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 I am agree. in the I am in the Christmas movie uh, Die Hard the Christmas movie camp. So uh, to to bring this back, but at, 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 to go, given that we're in movie land, let's go to westerns. In westerns. That logic should apply, and in theory, the good guy should hesitate before he shoots the bad guy, because what if he misses and hits somebody like a bystander? But the good guys in Westerns do not hesitate, and they shoot the bad guy, and they win. So, I, I, I mean, there's presumably a lesson in that. Like, the, the, the good guys, in this case, I'm kind of equating defenders with the good guys, and I apologize for all the pen testers and all the offensive security researchers who also are quite you know, quite, quite, quite good guys. But the point is that we're oversimplifying it for this debate. We are defending it against the bad guys, so presumably defenders are the good guys. So how do we make use of, of, of incredible tech of whatever kind while, being, while following the rules? And how are we agile to counter the attacker's adoption of similar technologies without breaking or without bending the regulatory limits and other things? And, and occasionally these are self 
Occasionally, these are more bureaucratic rules. Like uh, here's an example from a sock. Uh, I think it's, I don't think it's from my Gartner days. I think from the post Gartner days, somebody said, so you have this vision of autonomic security operations of you bringing more engineering to a SOC by mixing what used to be an analyst and what, what is the engineer slash content designer or rule sig signature writer or threat researcher. So you're kind of implying that it can be the same person. But in our bank, an auditor claims that a SOC analyst cannot talk to an engineer who writes the detection logic because we, they need separation of duty. And I thought, deep in my heart, I wanted to say, wow, that's so dumb. But I didn't say that because very clearly the customer was on the, not the customer, I don't, it was kind of like the other side. I don't think it was a customer. The other side was very much under the impression that they cannot adopt some of the tenets of, say, in this case, the ASO, uh, Autonomic Security Operation Division, because they cannot foster collaboration between SOC analysts and people who create detections because it would be violation of separation of duty in the mind of their auditor. So we had a very long and nuanced argument about that. And I think I convinced them that ultimately uh, the detection response team is, is all of them. And there's no separation, uh, you know, between the mechanic who fixes wheels and the mechanic who fixes an engine. They still need, need, need to make the car run. So ultimately they are serving the same mission. Right. Uh, but, but that type of rules, quote unquote rules or constraints are very much well, they are meant to be broken. I'm sorry. <laughs> if, if these rules are constraining defenders and making sure that defenders never win, then either you stick to the rules and you die, or you make a way, make political change, make cultural change, and evolve to the model that works. In this case, was the SOC that is a lot tightly, a lot more tightly integrated with the content dev, threat research, detection engineering, when you don't see the I'm an analyst. You write rules. I don't know you. Alerts magically appear on my screen. I deal with them. If they're bad, I complain to myself, but I never have a chance to change what they are. And that's how some of the socks live. And you, if you if you would live like that for the foreseeable future, eventually it would break. And if you have reasons why you live like that, then go investigate those reasons and change them because you do need detection engineering, threat research, and alert response, alert triage to be a lot tighter together. And uh, it may, for some companies, they may mean have lunch once a month as a first day. And for other companies, it may mean that these are the same people, like, of course, here at Google. Right. Well, that's, but that's why, that's why the three lines defense as a model has been so problematic, right? Because I was talking to people, well, we have a three and a half line of defense or, well, we have two lines, but the one line's broken into two separate things. And I think you nailed the reason why you, you can't have these clear splits because then no one really understands why things were done the way they're done. And then we end up with, well, it's always been done that way, right? Which yes. I think is, is, is problematic. So anything you can share about what you guys are doing uh, from an AI perspective, from an automation perspective that may at least help sort of address some of, of the problems we, we just talked about? I mean, obviously you guys have made a lot of progress in your AI and, and we at Black Kite are actually using a lot of those things in, in a cool way. Um, so what are some of the things maybe that you're thinking about that will help sort of keep the functional benefit, but still, you know, build more automation, deal with the fact that we just don't have enough people. We don't have enough people with the right skill sets. People can't keep up with the rapid rate of change. So 
what what are some things you're thinking of seeing working on that that might help sort of move the the ball forward so i would in this case i i want to post uh, post a bit of a boring disclaimer that i would probably go only off the publicly published data i wouldn't really go you know, look under my desk to see some kind of incredible tech that we use internally, and I will that just is, tell you that is fair. I, I'm not. That's fair. I'm not uh, <laughs> I, I would not. Uh, I would not do that, even though it is kind of there, right under my desk. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. Uh, the point is, when I think of say uh, the generative AI arrival for for the, as, as as in support of Defender's mission, a lot of people immediately went to. I'm going to make this thing, create rules and detection logic and playbooks and the remediation recommendations. And I am a tad nervous about this. And if you look at our announcements from Google Cloud about using this type of novel AI tech and novel AI approaches, we are not immediately jumping in that sort of like, quote unquote, obvious place. A lot more uh, value and a lot less risk because, you know, as, 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 Sundar said multiple times, we go for bold and responsible in terms of AI use cases. And in this case, to, to not just repeat the party line, bold and responsible for security may not mean have that thing write content. Because there are other things like explaining stuff, uh, explaining stuff, summarizing things, um, classifying and kind of like aggregating a story out of signals is a lot more interesting, a lot less risky, and actually, in any case, a lot more helpful. Because if you go and push for, I'm going to have that thing write content, then the immediate reaction from people who are kind of a little intelligent would be like, but you are trying to democratize the content development skill or detection engineering skill by giving the task to an AI, but you don't have people who can either write this or even validate it. Right. So whatever the system makes must be the truth. And it's also a very risky bet today. So if you go for having the system explain stuff to you, you are avoiding the risk and you're gaining the benefits. You are democratizing some of the security operation tasks. You are reducing the need to do, uh, you know, swivel chairs and extracting information from multiple sources. You are giving it to a machine and the machine is actually very capable of dealing with these things. And the chance of the, you know, the proverbial hallucinatory, hallucinatory kind of things that make your detection logic or remediation rules crash something is, is the chance of that becomes zero because you're really not asking the machine to do that. So I've seen some of the uh, use cases that VirusTotal is presenting for uh, malware corpus analysis using LLMs. These are quite amazing and they aren't about to have the machine create stuff. Uh, they are about having the machine explain, summarize, aggregate, converge in their story. So to me, if to, to go in a little bit of an abstract future, if, if I have a, a task like, hey, machine, write a, re a report for my executives that fits the requirements perfectly and addresses their needs and does stuff, that's a tricky challenge for, for, uh, for a security analyst and for, for a security professionals in general. And that task I can probably give to a machine and machine would, would do a brilliant job. But uh, write this rule to detect this threat in all the unique circumstances of my environment. That one, sure, we'll get there. And uh, we'll probably get there first. But I don't think naively asking the consumer grade LLM to write detection logic is a, is a, is a great idea. I think it's an idea that would lead to, you know, 
hilarity. <laughs> well, I mean, but if you remember, years and years ago, there were firewalls that they put out that were sort of self-learning, right? And they would write their own rules based on what they saw. And what the bad attackers figured out was, hey, if we write something that looks bad and we fudge the source IP address for the root DNS servers, the firewall shut down access to the DNS servers and they essentially DOS themselves. Right? Now, obviously, that's much simpler. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing. And I, and I think you, you hit on something that actually is really, really important, which is the AIs are, and I'm going to paraphrase and simplify, uh, so correct me if I'm mm -hmm. not correct, um, but the AIs are really good at um, parsing data and sort of analyzing it. They're not necessarily great at acting upon it. Is that a fair paraphrase? Mm -hmm. Or am I oversimplifying? I, the, I, I think it's more of a tangent. I think that um, expecting the expecting that the generic consumer grade LLM based generative AI would create rules for your detection or mitigation or whatever technologies that's work perfectly in your environment is a very naive belief. Okay, uh, but, that's but, fair. but but it doesn't make them not useful for the defender. And I think that uh, again, as, 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 a, as a funny aside, when we did some announcements around RSA, we did highlight that we have a, a version of the model, of the foundational model, that's security trained. And that model actually understands security a lot more than the consumer models or the generic models. And that, to me, where the magic would happen. The magic would not happen of you going to consumer-grade um, generative AI and asking it to solve your security problems. I think it's going to end in, in, in mayhem and hilarity if you do that. Hilar I love I love the hilarity. Oh, um, hilarity yeah, for I others think, who warned you about yeah, that and mayhem for you. Right, I think you're right. Well, I was at I was at an event back in uh, earlier in the year in Minneapolis, and the CISO for Mandiant, which is uh, a Google company, was there, and he he talked a lot about AI. He did something cool, which I stole the idea. He actually create he used Midjourney to create all the images for his mm -hmm. deck. So yeah. I've actually been doing that. It's actually made my decks very very pretty. Um, but like I asked him a question. I said, so you're talking a lot about attackers and defenders. And he, he kind of, he alluded to a lot of really cool stuff that Google's coming out with. But what I said to him was, well, what about the fact that your businesses are using AI? The bad actors know the businesses are using AI. They're able to access some of those models, right? You know, open AI, the, the CEO came out and said, you mean we probably shouldn't have open source chat GPT, right? So, the bad actors now know how the models work and they can poison data. They can manipulate the, the way the algorithms perceive the data. Are, are you guys doing anything interesting there that you can talk about? Because to me, that's a bigger problem than, you know, attacker AI against defender AI. Because the business people, they're going out and they're buying that consumer grade stuff you talked about. Yeah. And they're turning yes. it loose in their businesses. That came up. Uh, that came up a few times in in conversations, and admittedly, this goes a little too close to my day job because I actually involved with some of. I mean, I'm more involved with securing AI than with using AI for security at the at the time. So, uh, in that sense, that's a lot. A lot. I deal with a lot of this, and I would probably subtly question that the attackers understand what the models do, because to some extent, to some extent. Nobody really does, right? Like <laughs> these are probabilistic models. We all know that, like these are not rule-based 1980s 
uh, AI, quote unquote AI systems, right? So, but but aside from that, uh, yes, the 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 I've seen I've heard some incredible examples of businesses adopting kind of consumer grade tech, uh, consumer grade LLM or gen- generative AI tech, and trying to then make a case that it must be used for business. I mean, uh, to to briefly find my marketing hat, like. We, we're trying to keep a very clean separation between this is Bard. You can go to bard.google.com and have fun and enjoy it and right. use it for your own whatever purpose. But like if you are a business, you use Vertex AI and it would use uh, LLM and it would use some of the similar tech, but they would be very different rules and very different uh, you know, contract rules, very different rules about what the system would do. And to, to me, uh, there's a lot more security, privacy, regulatory, you know, safeguards and controls around the Vertex AI business approach versus compared to BART being a consumer tool. And yes, there would be some hilarity of people going to open open AI, chat GPT and saying, write a contract for my lawyers to do X. And it's like, can it do that? Yes. Oh, would it agree to do that? Yes. Would you, are you guaranteed a good time? No, you are absolutely not guaranteed a good time. And we know there are, of course, media stories where people didn't have good time with that. I, I, there was some kind of airline case I read about in the news about AI doing something kind of fussy. So this is fun, and this is going to be fun for the foreseeable future, I think. I think we are mm-hmm. we're going to be in, the, in that type of uh, figuring out how to use the security, figuring out how to secure it while also dealing with AI-specific challenges. Like we recently published a paper about red team and AI. And uh, when people assume that red team and AI is like packing at ports open, uh, it's like, no, it's really not. <laughs> Be- because it has absolutely nothing to do with what a red team would do at a normal company, right? And in the same paper, you'd learn that there are some traditional red teaming tasks around the AI-based system. But they're also AI red teaming tasks, and they're very different, and they're done by different people, even with different skill sets. And to me, this was very eye-opening. I, I, on, as, as some of you know, I also run a podcast, and on that podcast, we had one somebody, a security researcher, I think from Google Brain team last year, who was talking about AI red teaming, and uh, probably a traditional red teamer would not recognize ninety percent of what he said, because it's it's almost like a, overloading the term red teaming. Uh, with, with by adding AI, it's not a derivative of traditional red team, and it's a completely different craft. And it's quite magical. And you can you find people at Google who's been doing it for ten years? No, but maybe for eight. <laughs> right. Uh, I just I I mean I think you're you're spot on there. The the acceleration uh, is is actually what scares me more than anything else. And. You know, I always tell people, if you want to make sure something's going to happen, just tell them it's impossible, right? And, you know, like, I'm scared of a Matrix future. I'm scared of a Terminator future because, to your point, we don't really understand how a lot of these (laughs) AIs work, right? Yeah, that's a little, that's about my pay grade for sure. Like, that debate about, uh, that to me, I'm very quickly... But it's an interesting conversation. Uh, that was great. We talked about a lot of really, really good stuff. Fun, fun conversation. I always like talking to you. Um, you are a, a true uh, thought leader. I won't say futurist because we decided that's not a thing. But 
let's just kind of sum up. So um, we said a lot of good stuff. Well, Anton said a lot of good stuff. I asked good questions. So the one key thing I think we want to take away, Die Hard is a Christmas movie, and I will fight you on that in two seconds. Um, any last-minute thoughts or, or uh, little bits of, of, uh, of Anton that you want to share with our listeners before we uh, go our separate ways? Uh, I would say that I would. it may not be true in some kind of a very, very far future, but in the short to medium to medium long term, we will absolutely need humans for security and there would not be any kind of automated SOC, automated detection response, guaranteed secure software that you don't need to monitor. I don't think these are things we're going to have in our lifetime. And uh, are they possible in theory in some remote starship infested future of Star Wars? Who knows? Today? Uh, tomorrow? Day after tomorrow? No, you would need humans. And you would have right. humans armed with all sorts of tech, including AI. But I don't expect to live in kind of security singularity. Uh, All right. Good Good to hear, Anton. Appreciate your time as always. So I want to thank our guest, Anton Chubakin. Uh, I, hopefully I will see you in Vegas in a couple of weeks, although this may go up after, uh, but I, maybe I'll see you at Black Hat, DEF CON, uh, et cetera. Um, so with that, I want to thank all of our listeners. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure, and please make sure you subscribe below. Uh, we've got some great guests coming up. Stay safe, everyone. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.